sang a song a minute ago. Um, it said, we sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The lamb has overcome. <laughs> um, hold on to that lyric. Uh, we will come back to it a little bit later. Um, have you ever been bullied before? Uh, I have. Uh, it was not like uh, one of my favorite movies from about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, Mean Girls. Anybody ever seen Mean Girls? Mm-hmm. Man, girls can be rough. You know what I'm saying? Like, girls can, but uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl. Anybody can be bullied. Um, even me talking about that probably brings up some stuff for some of you. Maybe things that happened to you, uh, maybe something that someone did uh, against you, uh, maybe at a time when you were weak and powerless. Uh, I grew up at, uh, it, well, Chicago when I was a little kid, but then Flint from basically fourth grade until I went off to college. And uh, my freshman and sophomore year, I went to Flint Public Schools up until my last couple of years of high school, my junior and senior year. My freshman year uh, at, uh, in Flint was at Flint Northern. And uh, I was a minority um, in that school. It was a, pr a predominantly African-American school, and uh, me being a white kid, um, I, was a, I was a minority at the school, but I loved it, actually. Uh, it was just the community that I grew up in and uh, had great friendships. And there was one particular day um, where it was a big deal uh, for me. Uh, it was early in my freshman year. And I know looking at me now, you probably, it's hard to imagine that I was small and scrawny. Uh, I know, I was. Um, and I was walking into school, uh, it was late fall, probably about this time. And uh, this is the uh, entrance that I actually walked in, that one right there. Uh, I walked to school every day, uh, walked down this uh, um, kind of corridor uh, into that. Uh, door and then took a left and went upstairs. That was that really big, tall part of the building with no windows on it on the left there. Well, as I was walking in this particular day, there was, uh, I heard commotion because people were going in and out of the doors as they were, well, I should say the doors were opening because people kept going inside as they were getting in for class. And I could hear something going on, uh, a lot of yelling and shouting and a lot of swear words. Uh, there were two guys who were older um, that just, uh, I don't know what happened. I don't even know, I hadn't seen them before, I don't ever remember seeing them uh, after this time. I don't know if they had already graduated, and there was an issue, I don't know if uh, they were upperclassmen that I just didn't ever wind up running into again, I'm not sure. Uh, but they had had some sort of a run-in with an authority figure in the school that I don't know, but I'm assuming must have been uh, white. And uh, they were very, very angry. Whatever had happened, they were very, very angry. And uh, they uh, had gotten kicked out of the school or chosen to leave. I don't know which. But as they're coming out, um, they were looking for somebody to unload their anger on. And uh, there was a, a girl um, who uh, was also uh, white. And she's walking in. She's about 30 feet in front of me. And uh, they got in her face and cussed her out. You mother blah, blah, blah. And uh, I knew... <clears throat> just like that. Uh, I knew, uh, like, try not to make eye contact. Um, but uh, being one of the few white kids um, at the school, uh, I stood out. 
and uh, they instantly uh, locked on to me uh, after they were done uh, cussing at her. And uh, I can remember uh, thinking, like, just don't make eye contact, just, you know, walk, try to blend in. Uh, and, and they started walking, like, straight towards me. And they're cussing. And one dude gets right up in my ear. The other dude is, like, in front of my face. And they're both, like, up here to me. And uh, one of them just says, you know, say something, say something. Look at me, look, because they wanted me to do something so they could kick my tail. And uh, I tried to just kind of step around uh, and keep walking. And uh, as they're swearing at me, one of the guys just goes, <laughs> and spits at me right in my face. Now, I know I can't do anything, because uh, if I do anything at all, uh, I'm going to get my tail kicked. Uh, there was no adults around. Nobody was out there. So I walked in. Uh, I did make it past and turned the corner, got about three-quarters of the way up the steps to the next uh, landing uh, before I felt safe enough just to even wipe the spit off of my face. Uh, I can remember um, for months, probably years after that time, fantasizing uh, about what if I knew karate. <laughs> you ever have moments like that where you're like, man, oh, I'd like if, man, if I'd have known karate. Uh, in fact, I think that's probably why my freshman year of uh, college, uh, I decided to take this jujitsu class. I was like, I'm going to learn jujitsu, and then I'm going to be. Uh, it's like the guy who takes karate and he gets his white belt, and he knows just enough karate to get beat up. Like that, That's about how much jujitsu I knew. Um, but there was always something about that, right? Because there's something inside of us that wants to stand up for the underdog, something inside of us that wants to stand up for justice, right? When we see something unjust happening, it makes us want to say, we need to do something about that. Even more so, God, you need to do something about that. We feel that way when we see injustice taking place. That's probably why I like MMA a little bit, mixed martial arts. Back in 2013, there was a fight between a guy named Anderson Silva, who was the champ, and a guy named Chris Weidman. And Anderson Silva was like, dude was like a wrecker. Okay, uh, he hadn't lost in seven years. Uh, he was on a 17-fight win streak, and he used to just taunt with his opponents. All right, he would like talk smack to them before the fights and during the fights, and and he would like just play with them, toy with them, and 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 then he would just destroy them. And uh, so this had kind of happened in the build-up to this fight too. Uh, Silva had been talking smack. In fact, at the weigh-in, when they're supposed to do like the fight picture, you know, they stand next to each other. They kind of got in each other's faces, and Silva stuck his head right in Weidman's head and just started pushing him uh, down the stage. They had to get in between them and stuff. And so the fight's coming up, and, and Silva's talking all this smack, and they get into the ring, and Weidman uh, gives him a little clip, just not much, but a little bit, and Silva literally just stops, puts his hands down, and just starts laughing. He just starts laughing at him. He's like, come on. And you can see him like, come on. He starts doing this. And then he starts telling Weidman where to, where to kick him. He's like right here. And he just sticks his leg out like, come on, give me something. So this is happening, right? And, and, and you can tell he thinks Weidman is the inferior fighter. And quite honestly, everybody thought Weidman was the inferior fighter. And, and, and uh, Weidman comes up and, and, and throws a shot. And uh, classic Silva, he just steps back, whoop, just like that. And he did this all the time. 
So Weidman throws another shot, Boop, steps out again, and you're like, oh, no, like it's about to happen. He's about to just clock Weidman. Well, Weidman, though, had learned something in watching some of Silva's fights where he knew if I take one more step in, Silva can't lean back any further. And so Silva goes to lean back a little bit more, and he can't, and Weidman clips him and knocks him out cold. Silva goes down. It's the only time Silva's ever been knocked out in his professional career. Everybody's like, ah. Right? Because we all desire that. We, we want to see the bully finally get handed his stuff. Like, it feels like justice has been served. And that had to be a little bit about how Moses and Israel would have felt looking at Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh's unbeaten. Pharaoh's the king. He hadn't lost Pharaoh's ruling over everything, and Pharaoh's done some terrible stuff. I mean, we're talking about an MMA fight or, or like, you know, something that feels kind of minor. But what Pharaoh had done was just, I mean, horrendous. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I mean, literally it had children murdered, babies, enslaved an entire people, uh, ruthlessly enslaved. I mean, he was, he was not a good guy. That, that's why when we hear things about, like, uh, uh, Boko Haram. Do you remember when, when Boko Haram in Africa came and, and, and raided a, a, a Christian girl's school and kidnapped like 300? Do you remember how you felt? Yeah, powerless and furious and angry and God, do something. I prayed that. God, stand, like, do something. Like, I don't care who you get. You got to get Navy SEALs. You got to get some, some bad dudes from where. I don't, go get them. Do what you got to do, right? Because we want somebody to stand up against injustice. And, and, and Israel had to be feeling the exact same way. That's why God comes to Moses and, and says, uh, Moses, I, I've, I've heard, I've seen, I know. I'm coming to rescue. I'm going to rescue. And when he says this, remember, uh, God tells Moses, in fact, we saw this last week when we were looking at the burning bush and God's talking to Moses, like, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to use you as the one who's going to represent me. But I'm doing it. All right? And it took Moses a while to finally believe. In fact, Moses didn't really want to have anything to do with it. But eventually, God in his grace convinces Moses. And Moses is okay. And he takes his brother-in-law Aaron. And they go to see the Pharaoh and start to communicate what God wants. Let my people go. Let my people go. And so Moses actually believes that God is stronger than Pharaoh. Because uh, as I told you guys before, uh, this whole issue of the main characters of the story, there's actually one main character of the story of Exodus. And that is Yahweh, God. Uh, Moses, Pharaoh, Israel, Egypt, everybody else, right? That is all simply uh, um, supporting cast to the main character of the story. And God's like, hey, I'm, I'm about to do something, and, and, and Moses, I'm going to use you. So this is what I'd like to do this morning. I want to do three things, okay? I want to deal with the first nine rounds of the fight that we're about to look at, okay? Uh, also known as the nine plagues, all right? I'm going to deal with that in about five minutes' time. And then I want to spend a little bit more time looking at the tenth plague, the tenth round, which is kind of the knockout round, when God actually steps up fully and wholly and totally, and then what I'd like to do is close our time with a controversial revelation that someone had to die, that the good guys and the bad guys have more in common than they realize. Cool? So let's take 
the first nine rounds and deal with those. God tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him about these plagues that are coming. There's a chart up on the screen. It looked very clear when I looked at it on my computer. Now you probably need binoculars to see it, but that's okay. I've got a handy chart. I'm going to walk us through it really, really quickly. If you see on the top left, uh, a couple of things, if you're like really into digging deeper into the text, uh, I want to tell you a couple of things. First of all, uh, these plagues are kind of set up in rounds of three. All right, one, two, and three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, and nine. They actually repeat some similar things. There's some stuff that God's doing with each of these uh, uh, sets of three. Uh, the first one, though, is God has Moses turn the Nile, all right, which was the source of life for Egypt, into blood. Now, uh, what God is actually doing here is he's making everyone answer the question, who is actually in control? Who is actually God? And he does this by actually fighting against all of the different gods of the Egyptian pantheon. So the first one is actually a fight against uh, Hopi which was a god, an Egyptian god. He was the uh, god of the Nile River, and he was supposed to be kind of the god of life, and so God's like, hey, so who's stronger, me or Hoppy? Hoppy didn't win. Then it was the uh, plague of the frogs. Uh, there's a god in, Egyptian, uh, in the Egyptian pantheon called Hecht. I don't know if I'm saying it exactly right, uh, but he was a god that had a frog uh, head, and uh, it was kind of thought of to be the, uh, the god of fertility. And so God's like, all right, you, you think that you're going to worship this god of fertility that's a frog? Well, I'll make lots of frogs show up. And so frogs started swarming all of Egypt. And uh, then they die and they stink up the place. And then there is lice, which is kind of a, 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 a going at Seb, which Seb was the god uh, of the earth. All throughout God, in, his, in the nine plagues that he inflicts, he's saying, you guys worship these gods. Who's actually in control? Who is the true God? Now, here's the reality, though. Pharaoh was actually seen as and thought of as the most powerful God on, uh, in the universe because he was supposed to be the incarnate son of Ra. Ra was the sun god, and he was supposed to be the human version of Ra. So he's actually supposed to be the most powerful. You see, God is actually, Yahweh is actually fighting against uh, not Egypt, but Pharaoh as God. See, this isn't a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. This isn't a battle between Israel and Egypt. This is actually a battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh as the son of Ra, the, the one who's supposed to be the most extreme or powerful God in Egypt. And one by one, God is knocking off all of the Egyptian gods within the pantheon. And he's doing it with some really interesting ways. You see, uh, God, he, he starts with water, which was the life, blood. And then when lice comes, it actually he takes it from the ground, the dust, it says, and they become lice. And then we have also uh, plagues of hail, which come from the, the sky. And what God is saying is that I'm the one who controls the water and the ground and the air. I'm the one who created it. Therefore, I'm the one who's actually able to control it. All the while, he's making a point to Pharaoh that he is not actually God. 
that Yahweh is actually God. And not just to Pharaoh, but to Israel and to all of the Egyptians as well. Now, that brings us all the way to the 10th plague, which is the one that I'd like to focus on. I think I did that in about five minutes. So, let's get to the 10th plague. If you have your Bibles, I would like you to open up to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. You see, the first nine plagues actually get reversed. Pharaoh comes back, and he's like, all right, all right, I'm not strong enough, I'm not tough enough, like, Tell God to stop it, and God reverses them. The tenth plague, though, this one will not be reversed. Now, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and we've got folks that are walking down. They'll make sure you get one. You can follow along. You can pull it out on your phone, whatever you'd like to do. But we're going to be in Exodus 11, where we pick up what's going on. Uh, Moses is now talking to Pharaoh. This is after the ninth plague, and he is announcing the tenth plague, which is going to be the knockout blow, the worst one of all. We pick it up in verse 4. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. You see, what God says is that his judgment is coming, and it's coming from top to bottom. Uh, Egypt kind of revered uh, cattle as being gods. And so he, God says, look, it, it, like top to bottom, everybody is going to feel this. Verse 6, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Pharaoh says this. As he's leaving, uh, excuse me, Moses says this as he's leaving Pharaoh's house. He goes out, and then we come to chapter 12, where now Moses goes back to Israel and says, this is what Yahweh says. This is what you are to do. And he goes through the instructions of how they're to find uh, a lamb uh, or a goat that's a year old and is perfect without spot or blemish, and they're going to sacrifice it. Uh, uh, and put the blood on the doorframe of the house. And he says it once at the beginning of 12, and then he repeats it again in verse 21 of chapter 12. Read with me there. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, which was like a, a tree, a bush. Take some branches and dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe the ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped him. Uh, bowed down and worshipped, excuse me. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. 
at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Uh, can we just have like a quick little moment of like realness here? I told you two weeks ago uh, it's easy to assume because we're so far removed from this that it's just this thing that happened, right? And I, and I kind of encouraged us to really remember that, that when Pharaoh decided to kill all of the Egyptian males that were being born, those were real children that really suffered, that were brutally murdered, and real parents who had to see that happen and could do nothing about it. Real families who were enslaved and crushed under the oppression. This was real too. And, and, and sometimes th- this is the, the, the pieces of God we don't always like to talk about, to be honest. Right? Because we kind of prefer a God uh, who's you know, kind of fuzzy and cuddly and nice and he just grants our wishes when we need him to and... That's kind of the God we like to talk about. The problem is, the way God describes himself in the Old and New Testament is that he is a God of love and he is also a God of justice. Uh, he's a God that is holy, that, that cannot be in the sight of sin, and sin deserves to be punished. Sin deserves to be eradicated. I read this and sometimes I'm like... Like, why didn't God just, like, take out Pharaoh? But why did he do what he did? And, and I wish that I had some neat, tidy little answer that I could put in a little gift box for you and be like, oh, this is great. Uh, but God is not easily put into a box. And God is bigger than I can sometimes describe and help us understand. And God uh, has to be allowed to stay there. God is like fire, I think. You, you can't hold it in your hands. You can look at it and observe it and understand it, and, and that's the crazy beauty of Jesus. <laughs> that Jesus takes that fire, that holiness, and then he encapsulated in human skin so that we could know him and be with him and call him friend. But there is something that takes place here that is important for us to understand. Now, uh, I have to acknowledge that, but I also have to acknowledge how the text is written, okay? You see, I think it's important that we recognize that this was a real thing that really happened and it affected real people, all right? But the way that it's written, it's intended for us to look at and, like, want to cheer because the bully is finally beaten, right? Uh, very much so, we see Egypt as this bully that's doing horrendous, terrible, awful things. And, and it's like when we hear about what, what, was, what ISIS sometimes does is, as they go into some of these, these towns and cities and they just uh, rape and pillage and destroy and, 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 and torture and behead people. And you're like, God, do something about it. And when we hear that like, somebody was able to drop a bomb and, and, and wipe out ISIS in an area, we're like, yes, they deserve it. That's what they get. Look what they're doing. And there's something in this text that should make us say, like, oh, all right, finally. They're like, they're finally getting what's coming to them. But here's the problem, right? 
And I think we all kind of know. That's why we feel a little bit easy. You see, the problem is there's also uh, something that we cannot miss. The reality that somebody had to die. Uh, This is kind of an inconvenient truth. Because we would rather life be this thing where it's always easy to identify the good guys and the bad guys, right? Chris Weidman is the good guy. Anderson Silva's the mean bad guy. And Chris Weidman knocks him out. Yay! ISIS is bad. Right? Soldiers that fight against ISIS are good. But you want to know something? Uh, Israel and Egypt had way more in common than any of us would like to acknowledge. Pharaoh and me have more in common than I'd like to acknowledge. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I'll, I'll be real. I don't understand why when God created humanity that the only way for sin to be dealt with or redeemed was through the shedding of blood. Uh, I know it's connected to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, remember Genesis and Exodus, it's like one long story, okay? That we, we split them up, but it's kind of like one long narrative. And, and in Genesis chapter 2, God came to Adam and Eve while the world was perfect and said, I've given you everything, it's all for you. There's just this one tree I don't want you to eat from. And God says to them, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve, they don't trust God's goodness. And so they listen to the lies and they give in to the selfishness that they think they can become like God. And so they eat of the tree and instantly it says they realized that they were naked. Sin had entered the world and we have recorded the very first death. Now Adam and Eve don't die instantly, although they will die now. Death has entered into the world, but God actually comes and he finds them and they're hiding. And God actually has to kill some animals to cover their nakedness. God has to do it, and God does it for them. You see, uh, because sin, the punishment or the wages of sin is death, the only way for us to then pay for that sin is for us to die. And every single one of us has sin, right? Every single one of us is screwed up one way or another. We've made mistakes. We've lied to somebody. We've sped someplace, we thought a bad thought about, like, quite honestly, every single one of you in here has sinned this weekend. <laughs> like, me too, okay? Like, I got frustrated with my kids this weekend. I get mad at officiating sometimes when I'm watching Michigan football. Like, I sin, okay? I'm just telling you. Like, I, we all do. And, and, and the, the wages of my sin, what it, what it brings is death. Somebody has to die. That's why verse 21 is so important where it says in Exodus 12, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. You see what God does is God provides a substitute to pay for. Look, if you were in Israel or in Egypt at the time and you were an Israelite and you're like, well, that's cool that all my neighbors are doing it. You know, I think it's great for them, uh, but I'm not putting any blood on the doorpost of my house. I don't really need that. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of weird. I'm not going to do that. Their firstborn would have died that night too. Somebody had to die. What we find in the New Testament 
is that this actually was paving the way for us to understand who Jesus was. That's why when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Passover lamb that lived perfectly, and Jesus dying on the cross was the substitute offered by God for you and me. But it's not good enough to simply know that that happened. It's not simply good enough to know who Jesus is. We actually have to apply his blood onto our lives. Now, I'm not saying, like, go take some communion wine someday and, like, pour it on your head, right? Uh, Like, I'm saying it means that we say to God, Jesus, I believe, come into my life. Take over. I trust you. I accept you as my substitute. You paid the price, and by accepting him, then I no longer have to. That's what God desires, Uh, There's a passage in Ezekiel where God says, I I have no desire for people to disobey and disregard me. He wants everyone. And it's really interesting, actually. If we were to keep reading in 12, we would find that uh, the next, actually that night, uh, Pharaoh and all of Egypt wake up. And they go to Moses and all of Israel and say, please leave. And God sends them out. And as they're going, uh, they wind up with a ton of gold and silver. In fact, the text says that they kind of plunder Egypt because Egypt's like, what do you want? You can have anything. And God said, ask them for clothes and silver and gold. And so they do. And the people are just like, I don't need, just leave. Please go here. But the text also says that a number of other people who are not Israelites also went out with them. Maybe it was somebody, we don't know who these people were. They could have been Egyptians that knew that Yahweh was true God and said, I want that. I'm in with them. Could have been other uh, peoples from other nations that had been enslaved that were like, I believe in Yahweh. I am no longer here. I'm going with Israel and I'm leaving. They were willing to trust that who God was, uh, who God said he was, is actually who he was. And they were going to follow along with that. Look, friends, uh, Jesus is the Passover lamb, the one who died in our place. He is the substitute that God offers to you and me. But we have to accept him. Man, I know so many people that have grown up in church, and they've been around it, and they know all the right things, but they've never actually asked Jesus to come in and take over. They've never actually said, Jesus, I want to apply your blood onto my life. Just because you're around a bunch of Israelites that have blood on the doorpost doesn't save you if you don't have it on yours. And so right now I'm just going to pray and then I've just got one comment for us afterwards. But maybe there's somebody here this morning that needs to say, man, Jesus, I, I need you. I want you. And so I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads right now. And if that's you, I'm just going to pray this prayer. And then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and let me know if you did. So know that that's coming. But pray in your heart to God. God. I believe that Jesus is your son, that he is the perfect substitute. I know I've messed up and made mistakes, and I know I deserve to die, but I'm asking you to allow Jesus' blood to be the covering for my sin. I believe in his death, and I believe that three days later, just as he promised, he rose back to life. Jesus, I give you permission to take control. Come in. I'm yours now. 
that was you and you just prayed, I just want to know because I want to celebrate with you. All right, no big dig, but raise your hand if that was you. If you're like, hey, I made that decision today. We just want to know so that we can celebrate. All right. All right, go ahead and open your eyes. Uh, I want to read one passage from Revelation. I love this. Oh, this is so good, friends. And they sang a new song, saying, and they're singing this to Jesus, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, Israel and Egypt alike. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Verse 12, in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. At the very end of, uh, well, not the very end, but at the, at the end of this episode, the end of chapter 12, uh, we learn about Israel leaving. And remember, since God is the uh, most important character in our story, he's the main character, what we learn is some things about God. So I want to give you these five things as we close, real quick. Number one, God is powerful and in control, and we are not. Number two, there is no one and no thing that can compete with him. Number three, God does come to save his people. Some of you might think, yeah, but what about the Israelites that died before they ever saw the Exodus? Uh, God is able to save his people. And you might feel the same way because you might be going through something right now and you're like, God is not stopping it. Uh, let me continue on and I'll explain how he does that. Number four, his rescue is complete and total. Know that. And number five, on the other side of rescue is blessing and overwhelming provision. Sometimes God rescues us fully and, com well, no one gets fully and completely rescued in this life until Jesus returns and makes all things new. But he is the lamb who was slain, and he is worthy to open the seals and the scroll. And what that's talking about is his return to make all things right. Because our world's messed up. Right? We know it. We got all kinds of stuff. And even our own lives are pretty messed up at times. And God promises that Jesus is going to return because he's worthy. And he's going to make it all right. Jesus is coming back as a righteous judge to fight against wickedness and sin so that it will be eradicated and removed. And that's why it's so important. The most important question that the Passover asks us is will we pay our own penalty or will we accept the substitute? When we accept the substitute of Jesus, then we will experience that full and complete rescue, the overwhelming provision that God provides. It's what he wants. And so friends, let me simply say this. Comfort one another with these words. Our king, the lamb who was slain, will return and he will make all things new. Let it be so. Love you guys. Can't wait for next week. Oh, I'm already excited about it. We will see you then.